I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. Here we go for another really wonderful episode today. My guest is Talia Drew. And Talia is a doctoral student over in the UK in clinical psychology. And she is doing really, really fascinating and beautiful research. Interestingly, she's doing research on compassion-focused interventions, which you'll hear are somewhat similar to what we do here in the United States, but very new to the UK, which is fascinating to me. I think you're really going to love everything she has to say and all the work she's doing. So we're going to head right into this episode. All right, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really, really glad to introduce our next guest, Talia Drew. Talia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me here today. I am thrilled to have you. Talia, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I know you're you're in a doctoral program and you're doing exciting research, which you and I will get into, but just share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm doing my doctorate in clinical psychology in the UK. So I'm a little bit um, far away from you. Um, I'm in my second year and um, essentially what I do is I spend um, about a third of my time doing research and about two thirds of my time working in the NHS, which is um, the national healthcare system in uh, the UK. So treating people with um, various mental health conditions. Talia, you said in your paperwork that there's a a different perspective in the UK about things. Things are a little bit different. So how would it feel if we just start right there? What were you referring to? So obviously in the UK, um, we've got a kind of um, nationally funded healthcare system, whereas in the US, my understanding is that things are kind of private. Um, And basically what that means is that in the UK, um, people are kind of entitled to access healthcare without kind of needing insurance. Um, But I guess what that kind of means is that um, you don't necessarily always have a choice about the kind of people that you are seen by um, or the treatment that you can receive, because it's all based on kind of uh, something called the NICE guidelines, which dictate what the kind of evidence basis for whatever treatment you're you're getting um so i guess it's a bit of a different system because um it's it's free so you don't 
you don't pay but there's um in some cases that kind of um lack of lack of choice that perhaps people in the US have about kind of which service they go to which clinician they get to see so it does feel like it is quite different and so that actually leads me right into asking what you're doing your research in and how that is going to fit in the future meaning are people going to have the option to do what to get the resources of what you're working on so let's start with what you're working on because it's really fascinating um so what I'm looking into is um, uh, I'm doing a kind of compassionate um, intervention for young people with um, eating difficulties, disordered eating. Um, you don't have to be kind of formally diagnosed to have an eating disorder to take part. Um, but it's essentially based on the work that um, people like Paul Gilbert, Chris Irons and kind of Ken Goss have done in terms of the role of compassion in treating um, mental health difficulties. Um, the research that I'm doing is, is very new. And so it's something called a feasibility study, which is basically where we're looking at, is this actually useful at all for people with disordered eating? Can I interrupt for one second? Are you asking the question, is compassion even feasible at all? Is that, is that the actual question? Yeah, so it it it's is a compassionate intervention useful in um a kind of early intervention stage of someone with disordered eating. Because unfortunately, despite the fact that a compassionate approach has received so much attention and popularity, it's not really something that's actually been hugely researched. Um, and there's only one place in the UK. Um, that you can actually go and have a compassionate intervention for an eating disorder. Um, Meaning there's only one treatment center or there's a mm. really. So can you speak then to what other modalities are like if somebody in the UK is going for treatment? So um, the current NICE guidelines, which are the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, and they basically look at what the research is and they determine what services offer. Um, so within the NICE guidelines, if you're a, a child or adolescent with an eating disorder, you would be offered um, family therapy. Um, you might also be offered um, some CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and then when you're an adult, it depends on what eating disorder you have, but a lot of work is done using cognitive behavioral therapy. There are some um, kind of groups that use a bit of um, DBT, di dialectical behavioral therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, and a bit of compassion. But it's the, the, the primary models are kind of either um, individual CBT or a group-based treatments using a few different approaches. So I, I have an, an idea in my mind when I think about a compassionate approach. Can you share with listeners what it is, what, what exactly it is that you're think, wanting to apply to people? So I think um, 
when it comes to compassion, it people can see it as this kind of almost mystical thing that um, like w- what is compassion? What does it mean to be c- compassionate to yourself and to other people? I think it's important to note that the theory of compassion has come from a bit of an evolutionary theory. So um, the idea that we exist in bodies and minds that um, have evolved evolved over millions of years, um, but actually that our mind hasn't necessarily caught up in all of those ways. And so, for example, when we're faced with something that makes us feel threatened, um, we might respond in a particular way that we might not necessarily have complete control over because our kind of threat system overrides our kind of rational brain and thinking system. And I guess when we think about that in relation to eating um, and eating disorders, um, you know, when we were cavemen, um, we we didn't have a regular supply of food. We had to hunt for our food and it was quite precarious at times. And so um, now, you know, with the world that we live in, um, being surrounded by food all the time, you know, uh, you can just open up Uber Eats or Deliveroo or an app and just get food at any point, which is great, but our brains haven't necessarily caught up to that. And so sometimes I think we can end up feeling incredibly kind of guilty for the fact that we are hungry, that we crave food, but actually what we're dealing with is the fact that we still exist with a brain that is worried that we might not get food for a long time. And so a compassionate approach basically considers how um, we've evolved to, to exist in this really modern world, but that we haven't completely caught up with it and how we can invite things like non-judgment, um, kindness um, and wisdom into the picture to try and basically develop a dialogue with ourselves to um, kind of introduce um, self-love, self-acceptance, irrespective of what body we exist in, irrespective of what food we chose to eat for dinner, you know, trying to basically reduce the experiences of shame and self-criticism that we know from research are kind of really prevalent things for people with eating disorders. I'm wondering now, I know that the models that I utilize in my therapy practice are really things that I felt I didn't receive growing up or even if I even if they were available, I was so in my own head that I couldn't see them. Like I, you know, I do a lot of work through relational therapy, through relational theory. And I had trouble with relationships growing up. Even if people thought I was in good relationships, I was actually in my head. Um, I do a lot of humanistic therapy because I do believe from the core, we're all good and, and we get coded and coded. So my practice was influenced by what I felt I was either lacking or couldn't understand throughout my eating disorder. And I'm wondering if there is anything from your past that brought you to doing research like this. Really interesting question. Um, And I think that um, obviously growing up when I was younger, I did struggle with my own experience of having an eating disorder. And I I did experience a lot of shame and self-criticism and I've always been a highly perfectionistic person um and I think 
when I was kind of having, a, you know, some therapy and some support for that, those weren't necessarily the things that were addressed or, or targeted. It was more kind of trying to focus on kind of, yeah, increasing um, food intake and kind of trying to challenge some of the uh, eating disorder voices and thoughts. And whilst I felt like that was a really, really helpful way to kind of start stepping away from the eating disorder, it it didn't necessarily answer the kind of root cause of, you know, where does the shame and the self-criticism come from? And I think, where, where does it come from in my life? You know, I think I've had some tricky experiences. Um, you know, I emigrated from um, South Africa to the UK. And when I was younger, I did experience a bit of bullying in school. And I think as a result, my kind of um, the the way in which I saw the world and the way in which I saw myself was with a lot of self-criticism because I guess you internalize the things that other people say about you and so I think that and a, a compassionate approach has really helped me to to understand my kind of lived experiences of things that haven't been so great um, and have helped me to not criticize myself for you know, having had an eating disorder or, you know, making choices that I've made because, you know, we all do our best to survive. We all do our best to kind of just get through each day. And I think a compassionate approach really considers kind of the fact that we're all just trying to do our best in a, in a world that sometimes can be really hard to exist in. Do you, I'm I'm wondering, and this may be a very broad question, but how do you feel that, and by the way, there's never one cause of an eating disorder. And I'm not saying because you immigrated that that's the reason, because there's other things that you and I've talked about, that there was cancer in your family and divorce and bullying. How did immigrating though have an impact? I'm wondering there's so many differences. There's there's food rituals that are different from, from parts of the world. There's not feeling like you fit in when you immigrate. I mean, how, how did that impact you? I think in so, in so many ways, I'm so grateful that my family did decide to move to the UK because I think it afforded me so many opportunities I would have never had. But I think... So I was seven when I moved and I think my whole world and my whole understanding of my world was with my family and it was in South Africa. And I think when I moved, it kind of put me in a slightly vulnerable position because I had to move to a completely different school system, to a completely different culture where I was the kind of little girl with a, with a strange accent who used kind of strange words. And I think that for a time when I'd moved to England as a little girl, I did feel a little bit out of control. And I think that um, at the time I didn't have any kind of uh, disordered eating, but I think that um, there is a theme there of kind of not feeling completely in control of my life. And I think that eating became something that I could control when there are aspects that just felt totally beyond my reach. And I think those kind of cultural cultural differences, you know, do get you to question kind of who you are. I my my whole identity was, you know, 
being within a family system and I I was then so far away from everybody you know my grandparents and my cousins and I think all of those things in some ways made me feel quite alone for a period of time and I think it kind of in some ways made me quite um, anxious and looking for ways in which I could regain that sense of control. I think it's interesting because I I love that you say that it was a good move, like it, it afforded you a lot of things. Every situation can be coupled with many different experiences. It can be positive, but still have some traumatic effects on our little psyches, right? And so you know, I, I'm imagining when I, I'm, I'm imagining people or clients when they've done things like make a move and the parents are not understanding and being like, but this is a better life. And why aren't they happy? And how did this happen? And I'm, and I try to say to them, yes. And there's always like an, and that comes with it or often, especially when somebody is young and, you know, that, and could be, if you have a sensitive personality trait and then you enter a world where, like you said, people are like making fun of the language that you use and, and, and your accent and things like that, part of it can be exciting, not the making fun part, but like part of it can be like, oh, this, this is unique and everybody's attending to me. And part of it can feel really threatening. Mm. I don't know if if you have anything to add to that or if there's any thoughts if I or if I was just I always say this or if I was just rambling. No, I think I think that's I think that's totally right. And I think the idea of feeling threatened or feeling kind of on the outside is also something that really links in with a kind of compassionate approach, because there are these three systems, the threat system, the drive system and the soothe system. And when you're in your threat mode, your prefrontal cortex, which is that front part of your brain that helps you make rational decisions and kind of regulate your emotions kind of goes offline because you're just trying to kind of physically stay safe, even if the threat is an emotional threat. And I think I have always been a very sensitive um, person. You know, I, I'm very sensitive to um, how other people are feeling. Um, but I think that sensitivity has, you know, in my past made me quite vulnerable and, and has triggered that threat system um, that has meant that I've just felt, yeah, totally, totally kind of, um, totally out of control in my external world. Um, and I think, you know, parents do make decisions for their children based on what they think is is right. And I don't disagree at all with the decisions that my parents made. But I guess it can be hard for that parent to then take a step back and think about how the child might feel when they feel so strongly about a decision that they've made. And I'm sure, as you've said, you've come across that a lot with families where parents might get a bit defensive, you know, well, I, well, I did this because I thought this was the right thing. And of, of course it was the right thing, but it doesn't mean it's a completely positive experience for everybody as a result. Yeah. Are you able to speak a little bit more because I'm imagining people are saying right now, say a little bit more about the three systems. So you said there's the threat, the drive and the compassion system. Say a little bit more about those three. So, um, 
as I said, the threat system is kind of what gets activated when you feel threatened. And typically that would have been, for example, when we were living in caves, if a bear came in and we needed to run away, it, um, it triggers kind of our adrenaline to start pumping so that we can move our, move our body. Um, and it kind of turns off our ability to kind of rationalize and, and understand, you know, kind of emotional things, because at that point we don't need to be thinking about how the bear might be feeling. We're thinking I need to get out of here. Um, the problem with that system, though, is that most of our kind of physical threats have been removed now that we live in this society. And a lot of the threats that we face are more emotional and are more subtle. And so it can be really difficult for people to actually recognize I'm in my threat system, especially if it's a place that they're in all the time. Another system that we occupy a lot is the drive system. And this is the kind of achievement system. So this is the kind of you, you feel good when you do something productive and you might get a hit of dopamine. Um, and obviously, the more we do things that make us feel good and we get a reward for, the more we want to do them. And so, um, you know, we feel a lot of pleasure. We feel a lot of excitement um, and therefore we keep doing those things. Um, Often people that are quite kind of um, perfectionistic might sit a lot in their drive system because the more that they are achieving things, the more dopamine they're getting. And so their system is just flooded with, an, I need to do more and more. But then you never really take a step back to think, but what I've done is good enough and I need to just pause for a moment. And the last system is um, the soothe system. And this is kind of linked to um, kind of well-being, um, feeling just peaceful and calm, um, and is often associated with kind of affection um, with other people. And th that's associated with oxytocin. So um, that's that kind of um, hormone that people experience when they're like in love or like between a mother and a baby. Um, and it basically enables us to experience um, social connectedness and soothing, either from us to us or from others to us or us to others. And these systems um, basically make up the, the whole approach of compassion. And this idea is that we bounce from system to system. But in our modern life, we basically sit so much in threat and drive that most people don't know what it feels like to be soothed. And so the therapeutic work is understanding what those systems feel like in your body. You know, what does it feel like when I'm threatened? You know, am I tense? Is my heart racing? Are my, am I, are my thoughts difficult to catch because they're racing around? Okay, I'm here and I don't want to be critical and judgmental about that, but how can I move to a soothing place? And I think initially for lots of people, it can feel terrifying to be soothing because it means to slow down, to really connect with us. But it's, it's, it's so important that we find that balance um, so that we can actually lead a life that feels um, meaningful and, um, you know, that we've got that sense of self that we can just, you know, I've had a hard day today. I'm going to just have a bubble bath. I'm not going to go on that run. I'm going to slow right down. Most people don't know how to do that. Um. It, it feels like if we apply the three systems to eating disorder behaviors and 
please, you know, correct me. I don't mean to oversimplify. You know, when you talk about the threat system, and I always use my own experience, so I'm going to speak from my own self. To some degree, I always felt that I was in some kind of threatening situation when I was younger. And it wasn't physically threatening. It was due to my insecurity and low self-esteem. So it was more about just personal threat of like embarrassment and shame. So I always felt like I was in that fight or flight system, that, that, that again, threat system. Interestingly, I'm sure I constantly moved to the drive system, which is if it's good now, I can make it better, which unfortunately went into my eating disorder. So the eating disorder gets stronger and stronger as I'm in the drive system. And the soothe system, I think for myself in a warped way, came from the feelings I got after doing behaviors. Mm. I don't know if that just oversimplified everything or if there's anything about that that was a pr- that was accurate or what are your thoughts? I think I think what you're explaining is an experience that lots of pe- people have, you know. Um we know that people with eating disorders can be really self-critical and have low self-esteem and We know that they can experience a whole load of shame. Shame can drive someone to, for example, um, in anorexia, starve themselves or in bulimia, kind of engage in that purging behavior. But then the shame of doing that behavior can put you straight back into your threat system again. And you can go, oh, my gosh, what am I doing to myself? But you bounce between feeling great, that high of kind of, oh, I've just gone another day without eating, for example, back to that kind of feeling threatened internally and externally. And I think that I think the eating disorder can become like a safety blanket for you. It can become something that soothes you, especially when you're in a situation where you're not getting that soothing and you're not getting compassion anywhere else. You know, you know, when I remember that kind of disordered that that voice inside me became like a best friend you know it was always there even if you know I fell out with my friends even if something difficult was happening at home I always had the eating disorder and I think that's why it's so so hard to let go of because that does become the thing that soothes you it can also be so hard to reach out for help or for others to notice because often And again, I will use my own experience. I was walking through the day, first of all, saying to everybody, I'm fine. Hi, how are you? Always had that, you know, sing-songy. And these are little traumas that were constantly going through my head. Like, I remember like walking through the halls of high school and just like, constantly thinking, what are people thinking about me? What do I look like? What do I say? Is somebody going to make fun of me? Do I look, whatever it is. And then me in the whole time, I'm like holding my books and talking to somebody. So nobody knows that you're in that threat system. Nobody then understands the function of the eating disorder, because what you're trying to do is feel a sense of drive and that there's something better happening and soothe. And 
it's complicated, right? Like people are walking around in threat system, I think more, much more than we, we actually think. Yeah, exactly. Because we are, we're all so good at just saying, yeah, I'm fine. You know, it's almost like an automatic response. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, fine. Even if you've just had the worst day ever. And I think that makes it so hard for people to one, understand where you are and two, give you any support because you've kind of created like an emotional barricade around yourself. You're, you're inside and it's kind of you against the world and no one knows what's going on. And I think that's why families and loved ones can find it so shocking when some when someone says, you know, actually I've got an eating disorder because people go, unless, you know, unless you have developed physical symptoms that are noticeable, people are so good at hiding these things. And a lot of that hiding, I think, is to do with the shame of what will someone think of me if they know what, what I'm truly like, if I know what's really going on in my mind. Why do you think, as you said earlier, in the UK, there's only one facility that works from a model such as this? I think... It takes so much time to gather enough evidence to convince enough people that we need to do something differently. The way that research works is that you've got to kind of have a whole body of evidence to suggest that something should be trialed. Because I guess when we're thinking about changing approaches to an entire national healthcare system, that costs money to um, get clinicians to be trained Um, and it takes so much time and energy that until we get to a place where we go look look at all of this evidence that compassion focused therapy is going to be helpful the people that are funding it and making decisions are going to just want to do what they know is working at the moment and it's difficult because research takes time and it takes money and so until more people are looking into this and people are I mean um, Ken Goss as I've spoken about has been doing this compassion focused therapy for eating disorders for years and he's been pioneering all of this stuff so I'm hoping that actually in our near future these sorts of things are trialed in different settings so that we can understand whether it's helpful you know for at least some people with eating disorders yeah you also you you wrote about that part of your research is to do early intervention with young people can you say a little bit more about that yeah so I think um so the way that my research is designed is that it's um a self-help program so basically um it's a two-week program where you do something different every day and it's completely, um, if you take part, it's completely anonymous, but it, but it's also completely self-directed. And I think that um, the reason that I'm really interested and passionate about this is that I know how long waiting lists are in, um, in treatment centres. I know how long it takes for people to even be given an assessment appointment. Um, and that's that's not anybody's fault. That's just because our system is so saturated with so many people that are struggling so much. 
And so the reason I'm really interested in what could we do at an earlier stage is because what we know is that the longer someone struggles with their disordered eating, the more entrenched it gets. And if we can do something at a place and stop it earlier, we might be able to stop that person having 10 years of you know, a really, really intense struggle if we can give them something to do by themselves before it gets to the point where they need to go into hospital or they need to kind of have some really intense treatment. Can you say a little bit more about the two-week intervention or or questionnaire? I, I, I'm sorry, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, totally. Um, so... The first two days are um, psychoeducational videos. So it's really important that people understand why we are thinking about compassion for eating disorders, because what we know is that if people don't understand why we're doing something, they're less likely to do it. Um, you know, so it's got a bit of information about those three set threat um, three systems that we talked about. It's got um information about kind of what some people's experiences of eating difficulties and disordered eating look like. Um, and it talks about why compassion is an approach that we might want to invite into our lives when we've got disordered eating. On day three and four, you do um, a kind, You on day three, you do um, a soothing rhythm breathing exercise. And on day four, um, you do a kind of um, like a safe place imagery exercise. And the, re the reason we've done these is because sometimes when we move into those compassionate exercises, it can trigger some really difficult and painful emotions. And what we know is that if we can connect to our bodies and we can connect to a safe place, when we find something really difficult and threatening, we might be able to go back to that breathing or that safe place imagery. So we're trying to give people some tools and strategies to utilize if they start feeling those really difficult emotions bubble up. And then for the rest of the intervention, um, they basically are in a virtual reality world. Um, I don't know if you know what Sims is, the kind of video game where it's like kind of avatar looking people. Um, but you're in a virtual reality world and um, every day you work through a different exercise. So, for example, on one day you work through understanding the uh, principle of um, wisdom in compassion or um, non-judgment. And you start developing the voice that 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 part of compassion is is going to say. So we get people to think about a difficult situation that they've been in. We get them to identify what that self-critical voice would be saying. So it might be, you know, how how on earth have you eaten all of that food? You know, that's so greedy. That's so awful. And then we try and bring in a compassionate voice, some, something that can say, you were hungry. It's OK. You know, all humans have to eat. That's completely normal. And what we get them to do is to have a dialogue with those voices together in this world and the reason that we did it that way is because when people are really in their threat mode, it can be hard for the, them to do those exercises in their mind by themselves. So sometimes if we do it externally, it can become easier for people to embody those voices. And we get them, we get people to kind of in between each day, go away and try and think about what those different voices might be saying. And by the end, we get them to basically talk for, to their disordered eating 
from a compassionate voice so that when they notice what that um, critical voice is saying to them, they might be able to challenge it and actually say, hang on a minute, I know what that voice is. I don't need to listen to it. And I might instead choose to listen to a compassionate voice because I deserve to be happy and I deserve to live a meaningful and fulfilled life where I don't feel bad about myself every second of the day. I'm wondering the responses that you're getting from this since, you know, this is research. This is not something that has been, you know, is not implemented yet in treatment centers and things like that. And also, how do you find your participants? So um, we collect anonymous feedback from the, the, the site that we do the intervention on because we wanted to make sure that people felt like they could do it without kind of having to identify themselves. Um, and so we've got, we've got feedback so far from, uh, well, I don't know who, who they are exactly, um, but um, we've had a range of, of comments really. People have found the exercises using the kind of avatar platform to be really helpful and beneficial. Um, you know, we've had people say things like, oh, I didn't expect this to be as powerful as it's been. Um, you know, I didn't expect to be able to actually say anything back to my critical voice. Um, and have been able to kind of take that away into the, the lives that they lead outside of doing the intervention. Um, so we've had some, we've had some great feedback, but we've also had feedback from people who've kind of said, you know, this is a really hard day and um, maybe this wasn't so helpful for me today because of how hard it is. And that's equally as valuable because we know that we can't be our best version of ourselves every day. Um, so it's important to hear both sides of how people have found it. Well, that also is just like any therapeutic intervention is nothing is going to work 100% all the time, every time. It depends on what the client is, what the person is walking in with. And also, I think sometimes what, what people don't understand is even if you're still having challenging feelings, that doesn't mean the session didn't work. That just means that you have to, we're trying to help you tolerate the difficult feelings as opposed to using the eating disorder. I, I think sometimes there is a misconception, like if I don't walk out of every therapy session happy, then I'm doing something wrong. Personally, I think if you walk out of every therapy session happy, then I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not asking the right questions because that's not realistic. And so that's just that's just what it made me think of when you when you said that. I'm wondering is any of this research or any of these experiments that you're that you're working on is this triggering for you in any way? How is it for you? I've got to a place where I I think that I'm I have developed a level of self-compassion that I can recognize if some, something feels difficult for me. Um, and so I don't really feel like I get to a place where I'm kind of triggered by it. Sometimes the responses that people give me are, are you know, are close to home and they resonate with me. Um, but 
I think that in some ways that just motivates me to keep going with what I'm doing because the more I do it the more I realize that you know eating disorders disordered eating is, is so prevalent that um it feels kind of a bit like you know this is something that I feel like I've just I've got to do now and I think I'm in a place where I I like the body that I'm in you know there are days where um you know there are days where I'm bloated and I'm like oh you know these jeans won't look great today but you know I, I'm I've got to a place where I can accept myself for who I am and I think as a result, I can in some ways step away from the emotion that comes up for other people and think about how that might, what I can do to help them rather than being so triggered. But of course, there are stories that people tell me that are that are really similar to mine. And, you know, it does it does bring that kind of stuff up. But I think with my training and with kind of applying compassionate approaches to my own life, I have been able to step away from being re-triggered into my eating disorder um I just try and go and do something lovely for myself like um go on a, a nice walk or have a cup of tea um and just take myself you know take myself back to being me for that moment and then I feel better do you use your own narrative to help clients or is that something, by the way, I don't even know if, if it's, I'm going to use the word allowed. That's not the right word. I apologize everyone, but is that permitted? Like I often use my own experience and I say what, you know, what I'm resonating with and, and, and let me know if this fits and, and is that how you're feeling, whatever it is. What about in the work that you're doing? Are you allowed to use your own experience? If so, do you feel comfortable? And by the way, there is no right or wrong answer, Talia. I want to make sure I say that. I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that there's a narrative in, I don't know what it's like in America, but I can speak for the UK that to be a kind of professional in mental health, you need to be this completely together, kind of free from your own trouble, superhuman. Um, thankfully, this narrative's kind of started to be challenged, um, you know, by people that do things like you do with with the podcast where you go, hey, I'm a mental health professional, but I'm also a human that struggled. And I think actually being able to normalize lived experiences um, and be open and honest is incredibly valuable. I don't think I have quite got to a place where I've been able to do that in my own practice, just because I think that it's only been a really recent shift for me that I've kind of even said, you know, hey, I'm, I've had an eating disorder. I think I felt like I needed to keep my private life very private. Um, but I think moving forward, I think it is an incredibly valuable, valuable approach for some people. Some people kind of need to hear that, that sort of narrative, and it can give them hope that there are, there are better things to come. So I haven't been there yet, but I, I can completely see the value in doing that. And the narrative is shifting, but it, it takes a long time. I know. I know. I also want to ask you a question and forgive me, because this is kind of going back a few, like a few minutes ago with something that you said, actually, probably at the beginning of the podcast about how hard it is to get into treatment. And I'm wondering, because I know here in the United States, the pandemic, unfortunately, 
for anybody struggling with mental health, anybody struggling with eating disorders, addiction, OCD, everything is on the rise. I have clients that are trying to get into treatment centers and there's like a three week wait just to get the assessment. Like you were saying, are you experiencing the same thing in the UK? Has there been a rise in all mental health issues? Totally. And I don't know whether that's because we've all been in our houses without any form of other support, social support, kind of physical human contact, a hug when we feel rubbish that has actually exacerbated these things. But we've definitely seen in um, NHS services, huge increases in eating disorder presentations, but also kind of across the board, um, mental health um, difficulties. Um, in, in, you know, children in, you know, as young as like five or six to adults, you know, at the end of their life, it's, it's been a profoundly difficult time for everybody. And the, that I would say that the state of um, people's mental health at the moment is, is, is really difficult. You know, another thing, and this is, this is sort of going off a little bit, but I'm, I'm giving a talk on the influence of social media and eating disorders with with young people. And unfortunately, because of what you were saying, people are stuck at home, they don't have other supports. Social media has become even more prevalent. And then there's, there's incredible isolation with these young teens and adolescents. And so all they get is what they see on social media. And that has also created an increase in eating disorders. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's so frustrating, because I think, as an adult, I can look at social media, and I can say, that image has been photoshopped, that's not really what someone's eating in a day to maintain that kind of figure. But, you know, children and young people are so, um, so vulnerable in so many ways, you know, they they don't necessarily have the insight to be able to to look and see actually, um that person's got an eating disorder and if they're a a celebrity or an influencer um they can become people that people aspire to be like without actually recognizing perhaps that person's struggling too and I think when you don't have a clear routine or a clear structure you can hold on to some of those things that give you a routine or a structure e.g kind of you know a following of different people on social media and as you say, it's, it can be really, really, really difficult and really damaging to kind of be exposed to that kind of material and then compare yourself and, you know, feel shameful for being in a body which is, you know, you know, just your own. <laughs> and that also makes me think of going back to when you're talking about the drive system. So somebody with a, with a strong drive system who's inundated on these with these social media images is going to work harder and harder and harder to get this unrealistic body type or make assumptions about somebody's world being a particular their life being a particular way because of what they're seeing on social media then they bounce into the threat system where they need to protect themselves by doing something. I mean, it's it it it's really fascinating. Uh, it's it's really is this research that you yourself or a team created or you were asked to join? It's really wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
So I, I've been working with kind of um, my supervisors at the university. Um, and also I've had help from people like Chris Irons, who is um, an amazing psychologist and researcher in compassion, um, who has, you know, so much knowledge on how you could turn at times quite a difficult and complex theory into something that, you know, young people or anybody could understand. So I've had a lot of help from him. And then I've also had a, a lot of help from a company called ProReal that do all the, the technical stuff because I'm not, I'm not the best at technology. <laughs> you know <laughs> you're preaching to the choir on that one so yeah exactly so I can bring some of the the kind of psychological elements to it and the theory but they are the people that make it look like the intervention I don't know how they do it I'm always in awe of them but it's definitely been a huge team effort yeah tell you that is so wonderful I am sorry to say that in a moment we are going to have to come to an end of the podcast I'm wondering before I ask your final question is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with the listeners or anything you just want to say um I think in terms of the content of our conversation um I think we've covered so much um, and, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful that we've been able to have this chat. I've, I found it wonderful and I find listening to your podcast generally um, amazing. I think it's this really rare combination of kind of theory, practice and lived experience that I, I've personally found so helpful and I'm sure lots of other people have. So thank you for the things that you're doing. Um, it's wonderful. Um, yeah. Talia. Thank you so much. It it means so much to me. And and I just I appreciate your your words. So thank you. <laughs> Before we end though, I do have to ask your final question, which is, Talia, if somebody were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? I found this question quite like quite difficult to answer, actually. Um but I think I I really like Brené Brown and the work that she does. And um, there's a quote that she said, which is, um, sometimes the bravest and most important thing you can do is just to show up. So I think if someone were to write about me on a bathroom store, I think it would say um, Talia showed up for herself. <laughs> I absolutely love that answer, Talia. Again, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was so wonderful having you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me and for such a lovely conversation. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. <laughs>